Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. Word of God, coming from Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mathetias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mathetias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of uh, El-Medem, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Mathata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of uh, Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Archishad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of God. And back in 1997, there was a student who won first prize for his science fair project when he studied or he attempted to show how conditioned you and I have become to the alarmist practicing junk science and the spreading of fear of everything in our environment. In his project, the student urged people to sign a petition demanding strict control or demanding the total elimination of a chemical that goes by the name of dihydrin monoxide. And this petition, he had 50 respondents who, who, uh, who signed on this, and he asked them to support the ban on the, on the chemical for six reasons. These are his reasons. The first is that dihydrin monoxide can cause excessive sweating and vomiting. It's also a major component in acid rain. It can cause severe burns when it is in a gaseous state. Accidental inhalation can kill you. It also decreases the effectiveness of automobile brakes, and it has been found in tumors of terminal cancer patients. And of the 50 that responded to this, 
43 said yes, we agree that dihydrin monoxide must be banned. Six of them were undecided. And only one of the 50 knew that the chemical known as dihydrin monoxide is otherwise known as H2O, or water. And what he proved in his project was this. What you don't know can be hazardous. And following that, this morning I need to tell you that what you don't know about Jesus can be hazardous to your eternal health. It was nearly 40 years ago that there was a likeness of Jesus on the cover of Time magazine with these words in bold type on that, com- on that cover. The question asked in bold, who was Jesus? And inside that Time magazine, an article inside discussed how a group of so-called biblical scholars were participating in something called a Jesus seminar. It was their job to strip away all the myth and strip away all the legend about Jesus, all in the aim of finding the real Jesus. So they started their efforts from a place where they denied that Jesus is God. And these so-called biblical scholars, they arrived at the conclusion that Jesus was a revolutionary teacher. They also said that he never claimed to be the Son of God and that he actually never performed a single miracle. They started their, uh, their stated task was to search for the, re- for the real Jesus. And I would tell you that I'm convinced that they started out on the wrong foot from the beginning. They did so by asking the wrong question. Because if you ask the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. The pressing question is not, who was Jesus? No, the right question is, who is Jesus? For you see, Jesus is alive and well and living at this very moment. It would be an insult for you to talk about me while I'm alive and ask somebody, say, hey, who was Dan Newberg? No, if you really want to find the real Jesus, you need but look in the Bible. And in this text today, we're going to learn some important things about the beginning of the ministry of the real Jesus. And in this wonderful passage of Scripture, there are four areas of witness about who Jesus is. And we're going to examine these four powerful witnesses, and then I will ask you four personal questions from them, okay? So I want us first to notice the personal witness of water baptism, the personal witness of water baptism. Now, if you recall last week, if you were with us, we learned that God was moving in John the Baptist who was preaching near the River Jordan. He was calling people to a baptism of repentance for sin. And as people came to be baptized, those who asked to be baptized were welcomed by John the Baptist by his calling them sons and daughters of snakes. He was letting them know that without being born again, without receiving a new heart by the Spirit of the living God, that they were still children of the devil, whether they went in the water or not. See, John had been demanding that everyone repent and be baptized in water. So I call this water baptism simply because John was also preaching, if you remember, that the Messiah would baptize people in the Holy Spirit and fire. And in the middle of this preaching, this revival, if you will, his crusade, if you will, if you like those terms, John was faced with a personal dilemma. You see, his cousin Jesus was was beginning his ministry, and he came to come hear John preach. And so John preached, repent. And Jesus, at the invitation, came requesting baptism. And John is surprised to see Jesus come forward. 
See, John knew that Jesus was, was the Messiah, is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the unblemished Lamb of God. And John knew that the only person who did not need to be baptized of everyone who was listening to this preaching was the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew's account goes into a little more detail. He says, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 3, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented Jesus, Scripture says, by saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. See, John correctly observed that Jesus should have been baptizing him, not the other way around. And when Jesus said he was doing this to fulfill all righteousness, it meant that it was the right thing to do. What Jesus is in effect saying is, I need to go through this so I can replace you on the cross. And in order to replace you, I must go through this life perfectly. I will obey my Father at every step. So Jesus is my righteousness, and Jesus can be your righteousness, because he fulfilled all righteousness. In order to die for me, he needed to do everything perfectly. Now, we got to remember, Jesus didn't have to be baptized, but he was willing to do so for a reason that would help us. I want us to hang on to that thought, because we're going to return to this thought in a few moments. But I want us to then see another important witness to whom Jesus is, and that is the visual witness of the Holy Spirit that we see in this text. See, when Jesus came up out of the water, he was praying. And at that moment, John and the others were standing there. They observed an amazing phenomenon. They could actually see a visible representation of the Holy Spirit settling on Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit is not, in actuality, a dove. That's just the best way that the observers could could describe what they saw on that day. I mean, have you ever seen, we have plenty of them, at least here in town, maybe some of the folks on ranches don't get to see them during dove season, but have you ever seen or watched a dove as it gracefully swoops down to land? It can be flying swiftly, evading your shotgun shells, but just before it touches down, it flares its wings, it opens up wide to slow down, to begin to land, and the image then is is as if if it's just hovering for a moment. That's what the people saw that day. And I believe that there's more to the metaphor of the dove than we often understand. The way the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus gives gives us an understanding of how the Spirit's power is to be used. For you see, the word dove occurs on Jesus' lip one time in the gospel, namely where he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. See, the dove bears witness to Jesus' purity. It bears witness to Jesus' meekness. It bears witness to Jesus' innocence. A dove is not majestic like the eagle, nor is it fierce like the hawk, nor is it flamboyant like the cardinal. This was a directive to Jesus from the Father. The spirit with which I anoint you is not for mere uh, impression, nor for earthly battle. He will be dove-like, not hawk-like. 
should also add that the spirit of the living God is a person, not an it. So we use proper pronouns here. He. Okay? So when God anoints Jesus with the spirit in the form of a dove, he directs him to use his power in meekness, his power in tenderness, and his power in love, which we know Jesus does perfectly. We remember from last week, don't we? Jesus' invitation to you and I, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest for I am meek and lowly. You and I, if we are in Christ, we have the spirit of a dove, not a hawk. And this is a special manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It was special for as much as for the sake of the observers as it was for Jesus. It was also the Father's way of letting Jesus know that it was time to begin his ministry to redeem the world. Who is Jesus as we chase after this question? Who is Jesus? Well, the Spirit testifies that he's the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. There's a next witness, which is the verbal witness of the Heavenly Father. We find that as we continue on in verse 22. See, immediately after Jesus was baptized, there was another witness to his divinity. There was a loud voice from heaven that declared, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And sometimes we hear this and we read this and people are confused because they read that Jesus was the only begotten Son. And then elsewhere in Scripture, it says that we are sons of God. And it's important to understand that Jesus is the Son of God in a way that you and I, as mortal men and women, can never be. See, if you don't believe that Jesus is the truly unique, one and only Son of God, my friend, you cannot be saved. You can't. You cannot simply say that Jesus was a great teacher. No, the most important question that you can answer in your lifetime is this. Who is Jesus? And I want to tell you how certain groups have answered this question because it's really important for us to be aware of what's out there in the world. We'll read on as we go on in Luke that the Jewish community of our Lord's day, they rejected the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, they crucified him for it. But out there, maybe in the streets of divine and beyond, you'll come across those who subscribe to Christian science, which says that Jesus is the human man separating Jesus and the Christ. That Jesus is the human man and Christ is the divine idea. And they say of that work on the cross... One sacrifice, however great, is insufficient to pay the debt of sin. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Christ is not God. He was the first son that Jehovah God brought forth. His perfect life was laid down in death, but not for sin and punishment. Might be important to know when they knock on your door, I think. Mormons say that Jesus Christ, by obedience and devotion, attained to the pinnacle of intelligence, which ranked him as a God. In other words, Jesus got smart enough to finally be God. That's what they say. And they also say it's for us to follow his example. We can get smart enough, and we too can gain the same sonship as Jesus. There's also those who subscribe to something called New Age Beliefs that say that Jesus is not the God-man, but he is in a long line of masters along with the likes of Buddha and Krishna who themselves discovered divinity. 
Jesus of Nazareth is no longer then said to be the only begotten Son of God. That He's no longer said to be the God-man. That He's no longer said to be Lord and Savior of the cosmos. No, He is merely one of the manifestations, one of the occurrences of God throughout the ages, according to New Age. Salvation comes then by realizing that all that you and I need to do in all of this stuff is subscribe to what the psalmist says in a way. We just got to change a word. All we need to do is be still and know that you and me are God. Scary, right? And when you do that, you will begin to live Godhood. Who is Jesus? There's lots of strange ideas out there and you've got to answer this question for yourself. But you'd be wise to pay close attention to what God the Father said that day. Be really wise to tune in to verse 22 and see what God the Father declares of the Son that day. There's another witness for Jesus in this passage and I would call it the historical witness of a strong family. As you heard me read, beginning in verse 23, we find uh, what's known as a legal genealogy of Jesus' earthly family. And when people read the Bible, they often skip these kinds of sections. But I read it quite intentionally because you and I, if we focus our attention on a genealogy that's given to us in Scripture that God has seen fit to give for the edification of you and I in His Word, you and I will find interesting things if we take the time to study such passages. The evangelist Matthew also includes the genealogy in, uh, in, in the gospel that he's recorded. And there's, in that genealogy, you find that the genealogy of Jesus given begins with Abraham and it moves forward through time all the way to Joseph, who is the stepfather of Jesus. And the genealogy is different in Matthew for several reasons than it is here in Luke. First, in Luke, it traces Mary's family tree. We know this because in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph's father is Jacob. And here we find the name of the person who we know is the father of Mary. Another difference is that Luke begins with Jesus and he works his way backward, but he doesn't stop with Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. If we revisit verse 23, we remember that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. Why do you think Luke would record such a phrase as, as was supposed? Well, the answer I hope to you is obvious. Because Luke knew, and you and I must affirm if we are to be in Christ, that Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. God is. And as you read this genealogy, don't assume that it traces every single generation back to the creation of the world. No, it's important though for us to understand two things about a list like this. The first is this, that the words son of, they're not in the original manuscript. In other words, it literally reads, for example, in verse 24, Heli of Mathat of Levi and so on. The second thing we need to know is that from comparing this list to historical sections of the Old Testament, that there are some generations that are skipped. And sometimes the word of can refer to a father or a grandfather or a great-grandfather. And there are some large gaps in this genealogy. And even so, I want to call your attention to some notable names that were legal descendants of the Lord Jesus. For example, we skip down to verse 31, and you'll see that Jesus was in the lineage of King David, who was the son of Jesse. 
In verse 32, we see Boaz who married a Moabite woman, Ruth. He is also part of Jesus' heritage. Down in verse 34, you read the names of the big three, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. And the last part of verse 36, you'll recognize the name of Noah, the son of Lamech, who is the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch. The genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, who is called a son of God. Before you and I go about scratching our heads at, at that designation for Adam, we have to remember that the text literally reads, Adam, who was of God. This means God created Adam. Now, every family tree usually had some bad apples on it, and surely the one who claims to be the Son of God must not be tainted by any scandal, right? But look at the record. Look at the names. This is the value of a genealogy and the wisdom of God for providing such a list to us. Abraham, father of the faithful. He comes out of an idolatrous family. Jacob, a deceitful trickster. Judah, Judah's tribal banner was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He fathered Perez through an adulterous relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Even Rahab, the prostitute, shows up in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Here is Boaz who, who, who caused scandal by marrying a, former, a foreign woman named Ruth. But they became the great-grandparents of David. David may have even tended sheep in the very fields used by the shepherds who came to the announcement of the birth of Jesus. That same David who was a murderer and adulterer who is only forgiven by the grace of God. You ever wondered why names like these are mentioned? I hope you would. I hope you would, because if everyone in Jesus' family tree was squeaky clean, we who have failed wouldn't be able to relate to him. We wouldn't. But for the prostitute who walks any street in any city, we have to ask, is there any hope? And the answer is absolutely yes. See, God can change a prostitute into the, into the progenitor of grace. He did it for Rahab. To the murderers and the rapists who are doing their time in prisons, is there any hope for them? Yes. God can erase the blot of your sin and make something useful and beautiful of your life. He did it for Judah. He did it for David. To the person who's built their entire life on a pattern of deceit and lies, is there any hope? For them. Yes. God can change your name and your nature like he did for old Jacob, whose name meant grabber. He changed it to Israel, which means one who struggles with God. So we have these four witnesses, and they give a powerful testimony to the answer of the question, who is Jesus? I suspect that maybe some would want to quit right here. But you and I should never leave a passage of Scripture until we have sought to answer the question, what is God trying to say to us in His Word? So I want to ask you to allow me to place four important questions before you. I'd like for you to take seriously these questions. I'd like for you to honestly ask them of yourself. And I'd like for you to give an answer for them. And i got to warn you, you're not going to like the second half of this as we go on, okay? Because the section is going to demand something of you. And you could possibly come under conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that, my friend, is not comfortable. 
But in light of this text, I want to ask the first question. You've got to ask this of yourself. Have I followed Jesus in believer's baptism? Have I followed Jesus in believer's baptism? And there are some of you here today who haven't yet been baptized because you know that being baptized is not required to go to heaven. Your attitude might be something to the effect of, I don't really have to be baptized. The main thing is to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him alone, and trust my salvation to Him. And you'd be correct if that's your position. If you are truly saved, you will go to heaven when you die, even if you have not been baptized. But you need to look carefully at why Jesus was baptized. He didn't say it because, he said it because it was the right thing to do, okay? And it is the right thing for every true believer to do. It is the right thing for every true believer to follow Jesus in believer's baptism. Have you then been properly baptized? That's a follow-on question. I want to share three words with you so you can check check up on yourself here. The three words are this, method, meaning, and sequence. Method, meaning, and sequence. See, the Bible teaches that the proper method of baptism is by immersion. That is being dipped into the water until your entire body is submerged. The proper meaning of baptism is to identify with the Lord in His death and His burial and His resurrection. The proper sequence is to repent of your sins first. To place your faith in Jesus and then submit willingly to baptism as a profession of your faith in Christ. You're you're demonstrating that Jesus is your Lord, that He is your King by being baptized. Oh, you may never preach a, a verbal message in your life, but the day of your baptism, you are preaching a personal gospel sermon when you're baptized. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized. Not the other way around. And every biblical scholar in the world will agree that the word baptize means to dip or to be immersed. And I'll tell you, I've come across churches, and I'm really proud of them, that have started baptizing by immersion, even when their tradition historically has not done that. For instance, I'm aware of a particular Methodist church in Alabama who started to give their converts a choice about their mode of baptism when they came to faith in Christ. Most of their converts request baptism by immersion. They used to have to borrow a Baptist church to to baptize in. But a few years ago, they bought a a, a, um, no longer in use Church of Christ that was near their property. And they turned the building that they bought into a family life center. But they kept the baptistry so they can baptize by immersion on their property. The pastor remarked one time, They had Sunday evening services where they did these baptisms. And they're doing this in the gym, and he's baptizing one, or about to, and he looks over at the the basketball goal, and he starts to chuckle in the midst of of baptizing this new convert. And everyone's like, well, why is the pastor laughing? I mean, did someone say something funny? And on the back of the backboard, it says, no dunking allowed. And so he declared that day, I'm going to dunk anyway, despite what the sign says. And for obvious reasons... We do not believe that when little babies are sprinkled, that it constitutes Christian baptism. Why is that? we got to look at the sequence. They didn't have a chance to personally respond to the gospel. Christian baptism is not correct even for a consenting child 
or teenager or adult if it's done by sprinkling. Because then you lose the meaning of it. I mean, you recall what I read from scripture at Johanna's baptism that I often do at, at baptism times? We turn to Romans chapter 6 and Paul asks the church there, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And you may be thinking right now, you know, I, I really don't think baptism is all that important. Well, it's not the most important thing in the Christian life. But my friend, it was important enough for the Lord Jesus to go and enter into the River Jordan for us. I would commend to you that it is important enough for you to follow him in likeness. I need to ask you as clearly as I can, have you been baptized by immersion after you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you may have gotten your baptism out of proper sequence. You were dunked, sprinkled, whatever that might be, at some previous time in your life, and later you became truly born again. If you were not baptized after you were saved, your baptism is out of sequence and you need to be baptized. There's a second question. Have I received the power of the Holy Spirit? Have I received the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, you may feel pretty good right now because you can answer the first question in the affirmative. Yes, I've been baptized since I was saved. But notice what happens after the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon him. And you may think that the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus was a unique experience that was reserved for him alone, but you'd be wrong. Throughout the New Testament, we're taught that we must depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit to function as believers. We just don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to, to preach a message or to teach a lesson or to go on a mission trip. No, we need the power of the Holy Spirit for the simple, basic demands of the Christian life. We need the power of the Spirit to be able to forgive others. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to love others. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to praise God in all circumstances. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to encourage, to uplift, to edify one another. We need the power of the Spirit to be able to help others. And these are things we can't do in our strength of our own flesh, my friend. And the Holy Spirit may not descend upon you as he did Jesus as a dove. That'd be a really neat thing to see one morning, wouldn't it? When you become a Christian, you are indwelled by the, the, the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that you surrender your control of your life to Him. In other words, it's not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit getting more and more of you. And you may, see, you may say, how can I receive the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, Did you notice what Jesus was doing when the Holy Spirit descended on Him? First, he was being obedient to his father by being baptized. And that, my friend, that's a great place to start. But notice the steps again. Repent and be baptized. This is Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. My friend, if you are willfully disobedient to the Father about subjects like your baptism, do you think, or I should maybe say, what makes you think he's going to fill you with his power? 
You're lying to yourself. The other thing I don't want you to miss is the fact that Jesus was praying when the Holy Spirit descended on him. Maybe a very simple thing that you and I might miss when we read a passage like this. But if you need the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to do but one thing. Ask. Ask God. I mean, Jesus will find later in this gospel in chapter 11, Jesus says this, If you then, though you are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You just got to ask. Pastor John Piper says, What should obedient children ask from their heavenly Father? The Holy Spirit. Not that we or Jesus did not already have the Holy Spirit within us. Even the weakest believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. My friends, surrender to the Spirit. Ask for Him. And you will see Him active in your life. Here's a third question for you. Am I seeking to please God alone? Am I seeking to please God alone? The heavenly voice declared in verse 22, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And I've got to ask, can you honestly say that pleasing God is your prime consideration in life? Is that what matters most to you? I mean, you've heard the old adage, you can't please people all the time. And my friend, that's true. I remember once I was sitting in a cafe here in town and someone from another church came up to me and said, Pastor Dan, I don't know how you please all those people at First Baptist Church. And I said, I can't. I can barely stay in the good graces of my wife throughout the week. What makes you think I can please all the people at First Baptist Church? And that person got a chuckle out of that. But I told him. So I decided a long time ago that rather than trying to be a people pleaser, that I would devote my life and I would devote the ministry that God has given to me to pleasing Him. And after all, He's the only one to whom I am going to be held accountable. He's the only one to whom I'm going to give an account for what I did. And my friend, that's my only desire. I never intentionally try to displease anybody or offend anybody, by the way. But I've come to discover that if I try my best to please God, that most of the people around me who are also trying to please God, that those dear folks will generally be pleased as well. And if you haven't discovered it yet, you cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, reminding of you what Jesus taught, no one can serve two masters. You will generally devote your life to trying to seek the approval of God, or you're going to devote your life to trying to seek the pleasure and approval of man. But you can't do both. You can't have it. You can't have them both. That's why when we come across Galatians 1 verse 10, we find a very powerful verse, a teaching of Paul that goes to the Galatian church where he tells them, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? Or if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, I'll tell you, no one enjoys criticism. But you will often be criticized if you make it your goal to please God alone. You're going to hear it from everybody. 
And I'll share with you a quote from Abraham Lincoln that's meant the world to me, that is a comfort to me in, my time, in those times in my life when I'm subject to criticism. It was in the middle of the Civil War that Lincoln himself was the target of a lot of criticism. And he wrote this, I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration that if, it, if at the end, when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost every other friend on earth, I shall at least have one friend left, and that friend shall be down inside of me. I do the very best I know how. I do the very best I can. And I do the very best I mean to keep on doing it to the end. If the end brings me out all right, what is sent against me will not amount to anything. If the end brings me out all wrong, well then even a legion of angels swearing I was right will make no difference. What's the end for a Christian? It's not baptism. (laughs) No. What's the end for a Christian? The end for you and I if we are in Christ is when we stand before God and we hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the end for you and I. Here's the final question. Do I know and do I appreciate my spiritual heritage? Do I know and do I appreciate my spiritual heritage? Now, unless you're really into genealogy, you don't have to trace your roots as far back as Luke did for Jesus, okay? But you should be aware and you should be appreciative of those who are two or three generations before you. The Bible teaches that family is really important. I mean, if we were to turn to First um, Timothy chapter five, verses three and four, we would find that Paul is beginning to teach Timothy about how the early church is to take care of their widows and how they're to provide for their needs. But he he adds a caveat to this: that in caring for the widows, they should only do it if the woman had no other living family members to take care of her. And in this passage we learn an important principle. Paul writes to Timothy, Honor widows who were truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. I want to focus or call our attention to the phrase to make some return to their parents. Have you ever done that? Are you doing that? Have you ever taken time to contact those who are your parents and grandparents and just say thank you for how they provided a great spiritual heritage to you? Maybe not all of you have had that. I didn't. Maybe your your parents or grandparents never took you to church. Don't be bitter about that. Let go of that resentment. All that means is that those of us who had a good Spiritual heritage should be much more thankful because this is really rare nowadays. But this got me thinking about my family. The immediate family that I grew up with was not and is not Christian. Yet I am a Christian by the grace of God. And my testimony does not start in my childhood home. I was born in 1984. Yet my testimony starts years before my birth when my mother-in-law attended a vacation Bible school in the promised land that is Natalia, Texas, at a mission church that no longer exists 
today. She heard the gospel there. She repented of her sin. She professed faith in Jesus Christ. And the pastor's wife of that church, being the faithful servant of Christ that she was, walked my mother-in-law home to explain to my grandmother-in-law what her daughter had done that day. And in the midst of this, upon hearing the gospel for herself, my grandmother-in-law comes to repent and comes to place her trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And on that day, many years ago, or maybe for my mother-in-law's sake, not very many years ago, two souls were born again, born out of staunchly Roman Catholic backgrounds that makes Christmases and all other holidays really fun for my family, by the way. You fast forward to the summer of 2002, where I'm 18, and I just graduated from high school, and I've got my eye on this pretty girl named Yvette Obaya. And she let me take her to lunch twice. At the end of that second lunch date, she sits me down, looks me square in the eye, and says, you know, I like you, but this is only going to continue if you come to church with me. And boy, how did that hit me right between the eyes. It scared me because as far as I was concerned, up to 18 years of life, I could count on one hand how many times I'd been in a church. But I figured, yeah, what's the harm? Pretty girl saying I can go spend an extra hour with her on the weekend. Why not? Problem was, the joke was on me. Not a few months later, sitting off a back pew, the, the Lord saved me. Not half a mile from here. Now, of course, now the joke's on Yvette. She was just hoping for a Christian boyfriend. Now she's got a Baptist preacher for a husband. That of the deal. But in studying this, I came under a deep sense of conviction. Because I don't say I I don't say thank you enough to you or your mom. I don't say thank you enough for your faithfulness, for your persistence and your perseverance and your prayers. And I'll never have the chance to thank that pastor's wife for her faithfulness, but I hope to do so in eternity. And chances are, many of you still have the opportunity to say thanks. And I got to tell you, you need to. You need to go say thank you. You need to not let another day go by. You need to call those people. You need to hug those people. You need to tell them how much you appreciate the heritage that they have shared with you. How much you appreciate the fact that they've poured into you, that they've prayed for you. And you need to tell them, thank you for providing for me the kind of family that I needed. Thank you for making me aware of the kind of family that I can have in Christ Jesus. My friend, are you still trying to answer the question, who was Jesus? Or have you come to the place where you are seeking to answer the question, who is Jesus? Let me tell you, he's the son of God. He's the king of all. He's calling you to himself, declaring himself king, even your king, if you would but bow the knee and surrender to him. You can know what life is like in him when you trust your life and your future to him. Are you willing to follow him? Or will you trust him or, and will you trust him as your savior? Will you follow him in baptism? Will you rely upon the power of his spirit? Will you seek to live the kind of life where you seek his approval and none other? 
Because until you can say yes to all of those things, you cannot answer in the affirmative, nor can you fulfill what God has intended for you from the very moment he brought you into this world. You can't. You can't do it alone. But you can do it with him. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.